Podcastle, episode 259, for May 7th, 2013. The Great Zeppelin Heist of Oz, by Ray Carson and C.C. Finley. This one's rated PG. Ah, good to be back here at Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your charming, dashing, roguish, storytelling pirate sorcerer, returning from exile. Finally back from the dungeon of my day job's parking lot, thank God, and from the other, better carpeted dungeon of my in-laws. For a little while at least. And Podcastle, jeez. Listeners, you're a sight for sore eyes. Come here. I missed you all so much. Group hug? Ah, that's better. One more? Oh man, you guys are the best. Come on, you guys. Wanna hit the oubliette with me? Just up the stairs in the first tentacle, secret passage. Keep it secret, keep it safe, yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. Through this door. Here we are, the storytellers keep. Now, hang on a second, let me just set up the old magic microphone and holy, what is all this? Wow, you guys know how to party, I guess. Bottles of podcast ale strewn about? I have to order some new ones from Danuli soon. Oh my God, is that a statue of Wilson Fowley? Made out of butter? Hobson, you could have at least put clothes on the guy. Wow, though. That is an amazing accent he's sporting. <laughs> I can't record with him staring at me, though. Here, just put one of Graham Dunlop's loincloths over his face. Oh, that's better. I do hope Graham has another one of those somewhere. God, I do not want to know why he left his here. Okay, let's see, what's this here? A message from Alistair Stewart and Marguerite Kinner. Don't let the page win. Made from a mosaic of blank pages. That's nice. Oh, I wish I had something to eat. Oh, there's a bit of toasted cake. My favorite. Just a couple of bites. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> mm, so good. That's thank Tina for that. Now I'm thirsty. Maybe Anna or Peter or Anne left a couple swigs in one of these bottles. Ah, oh, here we go. <sighs> Warm but tasty. Hey, you guys want a sip? You're 21, right? Okay. So, uh, just make yourselves comfortable. We'll get this mess cleaned up later. Now, with this week's story... <laughs> it's good to be back. Now, with this week's story, we're going to take you behind the curtain here at Podcastle because we had something a little odd happen. Normally, when we pick out a story, it either comes into our submission folder or we read it somewhere. An anthology magazine, other venue. This time, John Joseph Adams, reigning anthology king, offered to let us read his new anthology, Oz Reimagined. And instead of sending us the collection, he picked out several of the short stories from the audiobook, which is available from Brilliance and Audible, and, for what I think is the first time, we got to review story submissions by actually listening to them. 
Now, Oz is all over the place these days, of course. You're all familiar with L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, or the movie adaptation starring Judy Garland and directed by Victor Fleming. And we all know that story of Dorothy, right? Or at least we think we do. It's interesting how time and perspective change. The book and movie are still huge pop culture icons. I saw a little bit of the movie not long ago on an airplane and was shocked by how great it still looked. But lately, Oz is best known for Gregory Maguire's book Wicked, as well as the hit musical based on it, which put the spotlight on the Wicked Witch of the West, and even more recently, a new movie's come out called Oz the Great and Powerful, which focuses on the wizard himself. I'm not sure exactly how Disney and Sam Raimi pulled that off, or if they did, haven't yet seen the movie yet since I haven't been to the theater since The Hobbit. Anyway, today's story has nothing to do with Dorothy, and everything to do with those two characters and a few others. We at Podcastle are very happy to present The Great Zeppelin Heist of Oz by Ray Carson and C.C. Finley, originally published in Oz Reimagined. A very, very special thanks to Brilliance Audio for agreeing to let us run this story and recording from their audiobook. I really can't express how awesome of them that is. Ray Carson and C.C. Finley live in Columbus, Ohio. Ms. Carson is the author of the YA sensation Girl of Fire and Thorns, as well as Crown of Embers. She says dude a lot, which, you know, gives her pretty high marks in my book. Mr. Finley is the author of the Traitor to the Crown series, about, among other things, a Quaker witch in the American Revolution. As a Quaker, I recommend this one. His short fiction can be found in Fantasy and Science Fiction, Escape Pod, and Lightspeed, among others. We'll have links to those websites in our show notes. Nick Podell is the man taking us down the yellow brick road this week. He's a professional voice actor. He's narrated numerous audiobooks, many of which have won prestigious awards. He's currently seeking to bolster his experience by recording voiceovers in video games, movies, commercials, and alternative media while continuing to narrate audiobooks. He currently lives and works around Grand Rapids, Michigan with his beautiful wife Erin and their cat, dreams. Now, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and do enjoy the story. The Great Zeppelin Heist of Oz by Ray Carson and C.C. Finlay. Strange in a Stranger Land. Scraps, the patchwork girl, witnessed the wizard's arrival. She sat beneath a tree watching the most spectacular show ever performed by a summer sky. White clouds swirled above an emerald-colored sky, like whipped marshmallow topping on a glass bowl full of lime jello, spinning round and round and round on a potter's wheel. She didn't think it could get any more amazing when the clouds cracked open and sunlight burst through, so blinding that she lifted one patchwork arm to shade her button eyes. That's when she saw the balloon. It was a big bubble made of brightly colored fabric with a basket hanging underneath and a man inside the basket clinging to its rim, and it was coming toward her tree. She jumped up and shouted, Turn away! I am rudderless in the maelstrom! yelled the man in the basket. His small voice was getting louder and closer. Rainless in my carriage! The man was making no sense. Scraps waved her hands to shoo the odd vessel aside. All right, but steer your picnic basket that way. 
I can't steer it because... The balloon crashed into the branches of the venerable tree, which shook and shook and shook like a dog shaking off a bath. The balloon deflated, becoming hopelessly entangled, but all the tree's effort did manage one thing, which was to spill the passenger out of the basket. He hit the ground with a loud thump, and Scraps ran toward him. She reached down to help, but he jumped to his feet like a cat, not all lithe and athletic like a cat making a spectacular leap, but rather all arrogant and full of himself like a cat too embarrassed to admit that he'd taken a bad tumble. Are you all right? She asked. He stared at her uncomprehendingly, so she spoke in a way that he might understand. Are you all right? I must have knocked my noggin, he said, feeling his head for lumps. I've shaken the coin purse, rattled the old dice cup. I don't know about that, Scraps said, but I think you bumped your head. You're not making a lick of sense. He startled when she spoke again, as if hearing her for the first time. Merciful blessings, he said. You're a talking rag doll, and a filthy one at that. Scraps, who was very proud of her shiny button eyes, orange yarn hair, and striped knickers, opened her mouth to say something likely to land her in a tussle with the strange man, even though she stood no higher than his knee. But the tree spoke first. And you're a blithering idiot, boomed the good-natured old oak. He was bending over as he said it, and the man from the balloon jumped so high that he hit his head on a branch and accomplished what falling from the sky could not. He knocked himself out cold. What a strange man, the tree said, his knotholes frowning. What do we do with him now? I'll run to the Emerald City and get the guardian of the gates, Scraps replied. He'll know what to do. Progress. The guardian of the gates had no idea what to do. The strange man had not stopped talking once since he'd been carried to the guardhouse. He called himself Oz, which was short for Oscar, because he had so many other things to say, there was no time to use a two-syllable name when one syllable was available. His talk was equal parts questions and opinions, although the latter seldom seemed related to the answers he received to the former, until he said, quite out of the blue, I'll tell you what's not right about this country. The statement startled Gigi, which is what the guardian of the gates was called by his friends, even though his proper name, George, was only one syllable long. But who in the world used one syllable when two perfectly good syllables were at hand? What's wrong with this country? Asked Gigi, who already knew what was wrong with the guardhouse. Half his bread and all his butter had been eaten by the stranger. Now don't go putting words into my mouth, Oz said. Not right is not the same as wrong. There's right and not right. And there's right and wrong. And there's wrong and not wrong. But to insist that not right is the same as wrong is to infer a transitive property of equivalence that is not supported by the evidence, for we do not yet know the qualities that individually compose not right and wrong. Am I not right? I think you're wrong, Gigi said, trying desperately to follow. You haven't been paying attention at all, Oz snapped. Have you never studied the mathematical approach to language known as logic? I can't say that I have. Which is not the same as saying that you haven't, Oz replied. 
but I digress. To return to the original, in fact, the essential point that I was about to make, what's not logical, what's distinctly and preeminently not right about this country, as you have described it to me, is that there are four kingdoms. No, that's right, Gigi said. There are definitely four kingdoms. There are four kingdoms, but not one king. Every kingdom in this land is ruled by a woman. Why, in the land where I come from, there's a great city called Omaha, not much different than your fine metropolis, in which my father served as a city councilman for two score years, give or take an atom. In all that time, he did not once serve under or even with a woman. And yet here you are ruled by four of them, Glinda, Bastinda, Locasta, and Canasta? He waved his hand in the air, as if it was a matter of no consequence to forget a witch's name. Her name is, Gigi started to say. Why, it's Poppycock. No, it's, what's Poppycock? Poppycock? It's a species of flower. Usually find it planted in gardens along with balderdash and humbug and ample beds and bunkum. Does she have an army? The witch, Gigi said. She has a few soldiers, I suppose, but mostly she has the winged monkeys. Monkey business, is it? Oz murmured to himself. And she's very capable with magic. I can do a bit of magic myself. Oz pushed up his sleeves to his elbows and showed Gigi his hands, palms up, then palms down. Then his right hand darted to Gigi's ear, and when he pulled it back, a tiny silver-colored disc was pinched between his thumb and forefinger. Gigi snatched the disc away and examined it. On one side was a portrait of a severe-looking man with feathers tucked in the back of his hair. On the other side was a picture of a large, hairy beast with a larger, hairier hump. What is this? Gigi asked. This is what you call progress, Oz said. In the land where I come from, which is known as Nebraska, there were once great tribes of Indians and endless herds of buffalo. Then men like me came along and we achieved progress, which we memorialize by stamping it on a nickel. What happened to the Indians and the buffaloes? The same thing that's going to happen to your witches now that I'm here, Oz said, snatching the coin away. Progress! That doesn't make any sense, Gigi said. I believe it makes five of them. Oz flipped the coin in the air with his thumb and caught it in his fist, which he held in front of Gigi's nose. Then he opened one finger at a time to reveal an empty hand. Hmm, Gigi said skeptically. But Oz just wiggled his fingers and grinned. Now that's magic. Yes, Gigi said. I'm certain that it is. He wasn't certain at all, but he would help this Oz fellow anyway, just in case. There was no need to risk getting progressed. The Queen of the Field Mice Your Majesty, it is a pleasure of immeasurable proportions, a satisfaction both sublime and profound, an honor far beyond a man of my own humble origins to make your most regal and diminutive acquaintance, said the whiskered stranger who had come from the Emerald City with the Guardian of the Gates. Delighted to meet you too, I'm sure, the queen said, glancing up at the guardian of the gates, who was deliberately avoiding her gaze. She brushed her whiskers with her paw, in case they held any crumbs. 
Who did you say you were again? I am Oscar Diggs from the wide and narrow land known as Nebraska, which lies across the hills and over the rainbow, where I am a modest purveyor of marvels, an itinerant educator of the masses, and the possessor of great and powerful devices of extraordinary merit. But you may call me Oz. Oh, my, said the queen, who thought she could smell a cow patty before she stepped in it. Well, how can I help you, Mr. Oz? Your Majesty, Oz said. I'm not here to ask for your help like some beggar far from home. No, indeed. Rather, I hope you will allow me to describe the manner in which I can help you. You help me? Your Majesty, this field that you occupy is part of a much bigger land. In fact, a kingdom. A kingdom is a structure of government that I trust you, as a fellow monarch, albeit of a more limited domain, approve of and even support. But right now this kingdom has no king, a situation that confounds sense and boggles the cerebrum. Instead, you are ruled by a witch, a woman who, instead of a scepter, carries a broom. Do I need to paint a picture for you? Oh, please, said the queen. I love paintings. Oz began to stomp around in a circle. A broom is the bane of every mouse. It's cold outside, and there is no food, but look! Over here is a cottage, a simple home. You peer inside the door, and what do you see? A fire on the hearth providing warmth and safety. You see that there are crumbs upon the floor, so small they've been cast off by the giants who live here, but these tasty, savory crumbs will fill your belly and feed your numerous brood of starving children. Do you follow me so far? I do, said the queen, but in a tone intended to indicate not at all. But this Oscar person seemed pleased. He thrust his hands dramatically at her. And then, here comes the broom! It slams you against the wall. It pursues you into the corner. No matter where you turn, there waits the broom, relentless and unforgiving, until it has chased you back out into the cold, bruised and battered, until it has swept up all the crumbs, food that could feed your loyal, hungry subjects, and tossed them into the flames where they can feed no one at all. And is this fair? It's horrifying, said the queen, her whiskers twitching. Exactly, said Oz. But here you are. You live in a kingdom ruled by a witch with a broom. And what will she do with that broom? She will chase you and slap you and destroy the food supplies of your people and leave you all with nowhere to turn and nowhere to live. Horrifying! But fortunately, you have me. We do? You do! And your majesty, Oz said, bowing lowly, If you will just do as I ask, I can put an end to the witch's broom and guarantee peace and prosperity for the foreseeable future. The queen looked at Gigi, who was twirling his toe in the grass and still avoiding eye contact. I don't know. Slam! Oz stomped his boot on the ground, making her jump. That's not me, Oz said. That's what the witch wants to do to you this very minute! But what can we do about it? The queen said, ready to agree with almost anything the stranger asked if he would just leave her alone. I have brought with me from the land of Nebraska 
an element called helium, and several things called balloons. A clean sweep. It was hard for Bobbin, one of the smallest of the field mice, to predict which thing would be more terrifying that day. Would it be getting tied to a string that was tied to a balloon that was then sent floating aloft to drift over the witch's castle? Or maybe while he dangled hundreds of feet in the air, it would be climbing up the string and chewing a tiny hole in the balloon, a hole not so big that the balloon would pop and drop him to his death, but just big enough to allow the balloon to descend slowly into the castle. Or maybe it would be searching the castle, memorizing everything he saw, never knowing when the witch's broom of doom, as it was now being called among the field mice, would slam down on his tiny body. As it turned out, the most terrifying thing was none of these. They started on an observation platform that stood above the trees on a high hill overlooking the valley and the distant witch's castle. Socks were tied to poles at each corner of the platform. Wind filled them, indicating which direction it was blowing. Only when Oz was satisfied with the wind did he fill the first balloon and set it adrift. They watched it until it floated over the castle and away. We'll call that test a success, Oz said as he filled the second balloon from the metal tank. Now's for the real adventure. Are you ready, my lad? Ready, Bobbin squeaked. He wanted very much to be brave and do a good thing for his fellow mice. Your valor and fortitude are deserving of the highest recognition, Oz said, and he tied the string around Bobbin's waist and set him adrift over the forest. Bobbin kept his eyes mostly closed and drifted over trees that looked at him with puzzled faces. Whispers ran through the leaves, branching out in every direction. Poor Bobbin began to twitch nervously. This was hardly the surreptitious entry that Oz had promised him. The balloon was barely over the castle wall when other faces appeared in the windows and along the battlements. The witches winged monkeys, furry little men with leathery wings and sparkling golden vests. Then there were monkeys on the roof of the castle. Then there were monkeys in the air above the castle. Bobbin paddled his tiny legs furiously like a swimmer desperate to make it to shore, even though his intention was only to turn around and climb up the string. The activity made him swing like a pendulum, and soon he was all tangled up, which cut off his circulation and made his toes go numb. The monkeys flew up in waves, spinning round and round Bobbin's balloon until it was twisting like a leaf in a whirlwind. The more daring monkeys flew in and poked at the balloon, or worse, at Bobbin. No, 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 he screamed. The monkeys laughed and spun him round and round and batted his balloon until he was screaming at them to pop. The balloon disappeared like a wasted wish, and he plummeted toward the rocks below, at the last second, as the rocks loomed large in his vision, a tiny hairy hand thrust out of nowhere and grabbed him. The monkey carried Bobbin high into the air, higher than his balloon had been, and then the monkeys played a game of keep-away, tossing Bobbin back and forth, dropping and catching him over and over again until he was limp and exhausted with terror. 
Eventually, the monkeys grew bored, and they took Bobbin to the castle, where he was presented to the Witch of the East. Who sent you to spy on my castle? The witch asked. Us, Bobbin said, and then, feeling like that wasn't quite enough, like it might be a good idea to have a powerful protector, he added, Oz, the great and powerful, he's a wizard. He came from Nebraska, and he, he has progress, which he keeps in his pocket. While he spoke, his eyes darted back and forth, looking for the terrible, the awful, the frightening broom of doom. The witch reached down and, with one long fingernail, scratched between Bobbin's ears. Despite his wariness, Bobbin closed his eyes and sighed. Tell me everything you remember, the witch said. So that's what Bobbin did. Even though when he got to the part about the broom of doom, she laughed so hard that tears fell from her eyes. That's a good boy, the witch said when the laughter subsided and her breath returned. Will you take a message to this wizard for me? Y- y- yes, Bobbin said. Tell him if he's smart, he'll go back to Nebraska. I can do that, Bobbin said. I know you can, the witch said, giving him a big yellow-toothed smile. Now, would you like to walk back to the wizard's base of operations, or would you like my monkey friends to fly you there? Walk, 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 Bobbin shouted. He staggered like a drunk all the way back to the far end of the valley, when the wizard saw Bobbin, he snatched him off the ground. What did you find out? He demanded. That I don't like flying, Bobbin said. How many soldiers does she have? What sort of weapons? Oz, in his enthusiasm, gripped Bobbin too tightly, more roughly even than the monkeys had. So it was a reflex, really, that caused Bobbin to use the only weapons he owned, his teeth, which he sunk into Oz's thumb. Oz yelped and dropped Bobbin, who ran off to a safe distance. Go back to Nebraska or you'll smart, he yelled. Without waiting for a response, he ran away and didn't stop until he reached the meadow. Even though Bobbin never saw the witch's broom, every time the other field mice gathered to hear about his adventure, when he reached the conversation with the witch, he told his listeners that the broom moved tirelessly around the castle of its own accord, cleaning every nook and cranny, every crack and hiding place, so that it was the cleanest castle that had ever been lived in by anyone anywhere. The baby mice shivered when Bobbin told them that part of the story. Bobbin shivered too. Hot Air over the years, ever since he ran away from the peppermint home for orphaned and abandoned youth, Finagle the Munchkin had been a pickpocket, a highwayman, a mercenary, a gnome wrangler, a goat washer, and once, for two weeks and three Saturdays in the land of Ev, a wedding cake decorator. Personally, he considered the last two the most dangerous jobs he had ever done. But then... He had never before worked for a wizard. 
so let me get this straight. He said to Oz as they stood on top of his observation platform where they could see the witch's castle. The witch is a danger, so you want me to go up in a hot air balloon so I can spy on her? I can tell that you're a gentleman of unusual perspicacity and astounding perception, with a mind as sharp as a barber's razor and as quick to snap as a bear trap, Oz said. And if you do this for me, I promise to pay you all the wealth I previously described, but even that will be as nothing compared to the treasure chest full of glory that shall be heaped upon you. I suspect you get paid by the word, the munchkin muttered. What was that good, sir? I said, I expect you were as good as your word, Finagle said. He was puffing on a cheroot and blew a smoke ring in Oz's direction. But I have three questions I want answered first. And I promise you three full and satisfying answers, answers that will erase the stain of any doubt and introduce in your mind a comprehension and understanding of the situation that will engender your wholehearted commitment to the greater cause. No matter how long it takes the munchkin muttered. I beg your pardon, my dear friend. I said that's exactly what it takes. He looked at the tiny basket and the large balloon, which was being inflated with hot air as they spoke. Question the first. Why is it you want me to climb up in this contraption and float over a castle when you could clearly do it yourself? An excellent question. A very wise and sage question. A wonderful question. And the answer? Why, the answer is obvious, my good friend. You need but to consider your size compared with mine. Why, I'm twice the man that you are. Hold on now. Hear me out, please. Simply by way of physical proportions. Why, look at me. I'm bigger than you in every dimension. Taller, wider, and thicker. I'm beginning to think you're thick enough. See, there you have it. So with me aboard, this hot air balloon would founder like a boat loaded with rocks. And that would do no good at all, not for anyone. And yet with you aboard, a man whose size is, I dare say, in inverse proportion to his value, whose courage is worth his weight in gold, why, the craft will certainly most positively and absolutely soar like a bird in the wind. So, say I soar, Finagle said, looking out over the valley filled with trees to the sharp edges of the witch's castle perched on a distant crag. What should I see that a bird can't see? Why not just send a bird? I know a crow or two, even a mockingbird, who'll do for you in a pinch. That's an excellent question, a very keen and perceptive question. Go on with the answer. Why, isn't it obvious? I came to you for your reputation as the most courageous man among your people. Is a bird ever as brave as a man? No! Can a bird hold the weapon in his hands? No! Will a bird count the grains of sand? I get the idea, Finagle said. So when the witch's monkeys come flying up at me, just like they did for that mousy fellow, you want me to fight them off and then count what's inside the castle walls? The soldiers and such. Fight them off only long enough to release your ballast and man the hot air pump. Let the balloon rise directly upward until it's beyond the limited flight of these heavy creatures, and then, when you are clear of the castle, release the air from the balloon just as I showed you and float safely back to land where I will come and meet you. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do that, Finagle said. 
but it didn't add up with what he'd told that field mouse to do. What was this Oz fellow up to? Drop the ballast and pump the hot air, Oz repeated. Hot air, I've got it. It seems easier than fighting off a few dozen monkeys. I knew you were the man for the job, Oz said. Never as a recommendation more recommended itself, nor commended its recommender, who deserves a commendation. He blinked and regarded Finagle with a fixed smile and a blank stare. Lost your flow of words there? Finagle asked. Not at all, Oz said. Not at all. I was simply trying to say that you came highly recommended, and with good and self-evident reason. Third and final question, then, Finagle said, staring hard at the castle, which protected the Valley of the Munchkins from the wild creatures beyond. What have you got against the witch? Oz paused thoughtfully. He pulled a brass tube from his trouser pocket, held it up to his eye, and stared across the valley to the castle. Finagle was about to repeat his question when the wizard finally spoke. In the land where I come from, we have wonderful institutions of learning where a man can discover all the secrets of the universe, and that's why these institutions are called universities, Oz said. And in these universities, there are wise men called philosophers who ponder the fundamental questions of life. Being in the business of questions, they employ a tool named for their most distinguished predecessor, a philosopher named Socrates. And this tool is called the Socratic Method. And those who use this tool answer questions with more questions in order to reach a more enlightened perspective. What? Finagle said. That's precisely how you do it, Oz said. So permit me to answer your question about the witch with a question of my own. Go ahead, Finagle said. Do you know what sort of man the witch might be interested in? Finagle narrowed his eyes. Where are you going with this? Yes, by jug, that's how you do it. Socrates will be proud. Ow! Oz hopped on one foot, holding his opposite shin, the one that Finagle had just kicked. That's for sending me up in a balloon with a bunch of flying monkeys chasing me, the munchkin said, and I want twice what you offered to pay me. Monkey Business Wisdom from Omaha You only have one chance to make a first impression. Oscar Diggs was not about to waste that chance. He stared at himself in the full-length mirror and admired the work done by the tailors in the Emerald City. A double-breasted vest in emerald silk with silver buttons, a tailcoat in a complimentary green trimmed in black velvet, fall front trousers and a lovely shade of fawn. He had never looked so good. To be fair, the effect was marred somewhat by the straps holding the canister of oxygen to his back and by the bug-like mask connected to the tank by a breathing tube that, at the present moment, hung loose about his neck where a less inventive and more ill-prepared man would tie an ordinary cravat. He was, he assured himself, most inventive and well-prepared and wholly extraordinary, even without a cravat. More importantly, he had a plan. A plan which, so far, had worked to perfection. The first part had involved simple helium balloons and an even simpler field mouse, the balloons revealed the direction and speed of the valley's winds, while the mouse served up misdirection by relaying his false concerns about soldiers to the witch.
The second part of the plan employed a hot air balloon, which permitted him to measure the speed and maximum ascent of the winged monkeys, who were his real target all along. Now the third part of his plan, involving a hydrogen balloon of the type popularly called a zeppelin, was about to be set into motion. He climbed into the large gondola of the craft, which was moored to the top of the tower that the Emerald Citizens had built for him, and he untied the ropes that held him down. His heart beat faster as the craft rose majestically into the air. The valley of the witch was long and narrow, split by a gleaming blue ribbon of river, cushioned by thick green orchards on either side, and framed by rugged peaks of bare stone that reached straight up to the sky. At the upper end of the valley, a picturesque castle occupied a bluff overlooking the river. The question, Oscar Diggs mused, is why a witch needs a castle at all. Either she has great wealth, which her army of winged monkeys guards for her, or she has great enemies, which her army of winged monkeys protects her from. Either way, it's the business with the monkeys that is key. His palms grew sweaty as the great airship approached the witch's castle. He wiped his hands on his trousers and peered through the telescope. The monkeys were already perched along the battlements and on the rooftops, eyeing his approach. The question, Oscar Diggs asked himself, is how much is she willing to trade to get the winged monkeys back? Of course, the bigger issue was going to be stealing them in the first place. It was too late to double-check his calculations. He had made his plan, and here came the monkeys. It was much more terrifying to see in person than it was to watch from the safety of his viewing platform. He pulled his mask over his face, turned on the flow of oxygen, and braced for the impact. The gondola rocked as the first monkeys landed on the sides and swarmed aboard. They ran all around the rim and rigging, curiously exploring the craft, just as he'd seen them do during the previous tests. They began creeping down the rigging toward him, eyeing him warily, ready to pounce. Not yet, not yet, he muttered to himself, his hands shaking. More monkeys jumped on, then more and more. The moment they were all aboard, he yanked the rope he had prepared, releasing thousands of pounds of ballast. Straight up, the zeppelin went, fast enough to press them all to the floor of the gondola. In four seconds, they reached a height where the air was too thin to support the monkey's flight. In eight seconds, they reached a height where the air was too thin for them to stay awake. The monkeys in the rigging lost their grip and tumbled into the gondola at his feet. Oscar shivered in the cold, but the dazed or entirely unconscious monkeys were now at his mercy. He moved quickly around the gondola, binding them hand and foot and wing with ropes he had brought specifically for that purpose. When he was certain that all his prisoners were secure, he changed the course of the zeppelin and reduced his altitude, bringing it back toward the witch's castle. All the way, he gave the thought to the encomium this daring would win him and the epithets that would cling like laurels to his name forever after. Oz the wise, Oz the wonderful, Oz the triumphant. He moored to the peak of the witch's highest tower and descended a rope ladder to the castle's courtyard where the witch was waiting for him. She was older than he expected, but certainly not much more so than an old maid or two he had courted briefly back in Omaha. 
She was taller than he was, but some of that was the tall pointed hat she wore. If he could only convince her to ditch the hat and put her hair up in a more practical bun. Very bold coming here, the witch said to him when his feet touched ground. Bold or foolhardy? Merely the logical thing to do, Oscar started. He swallowed hard. Though he considered himself an accomplished practitioner of the elocutionary arts, this one would require every bit of his skill. He finished, since I wanted to prove myself worthy of you. Worthy, she said, surprised. Worthy, he said confidently, which is love confidence. The man who could capture your winged monkeys and return them to you is the man who can outsmart your enemies just as easily. Who better to be your ally than the man who could outsmart you, but didn't? What are you getting at, she said. He bowed low to her, and when he raised his head again, he smiled. You have a kingdom without a king. I could be that man. You have a castle without a lord. I could be that man. You have a heart without a helpmeet. I could be that man. Are you suggesting that I need you? I'm suggesting that we need each other. Why, we could be like John Smith and Pocahontas, opening up virgin lands for settlement. We could be like Sacagawea and Lewis, or possibly Clark, expanding territories westward. Isn't it manifest? Isn't it destiny? She stared at him up and down, and he tried not to pose or preen too much, although he wanted her to notice what a figure he cut. Her glance slipped past his shoulder to the impressive airship moored behind him. A wicked grin played across her lips. So, is that progress in your pocket? She said. Are you just happy to see me? The conversation went downhill quickly from there. His New Digs the two witches shared a cup of tea in the gazebo situated in Lacosta's summer garden. Lacosta held a cup of tea to her lips and breathed in the minty aroma while her sister from the east retrieved a small hat from her pocket and set it on the table. Here's the golden cap, she said. Whoever possesses it can command the winged monkeys three times. I've used my three commands, so now I pass it on to you. You may need them next if he chooses to come after you. Thank you, Lacosta said, but I don't think I need to fear him much, not after what you've described. He'll fool some with his tricks and bluster, like he has the folks in the Emerald City. What else did he say to you then? After he proposed, I mean. That was a proposal of marriage, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it most definitely was. She chuckled and tapped her silver shoes in delight. So then he told me he thought that together we could unite all four kingdoms into a single country, which, get this, he wanted to name for himself. Oz? asked Lacosta. No, that's just it, her sister said, pausing to drop in another cube of sugar. He suggested that we call it Diggity. And that's when... And that's when I pointed up in the air to show him the monkeys had chewed through their ropes and were flying away with my new zeppelin. Smoothest heist ever.
And welcome back. There really is no place like home, is there? Come here. Let me give you guys one more group puck. So, as you all have been aware, I've been out for the last two months, off the microphone at least. We had a new baby, the charming Captain Bilbo Hook, which is usually pronounced around our house like Elliot Arthur Thompson. He's doing great. We're all doing pretty great, and we're still at the in-laws while our house gets redone, but I have some pretty great in-laws, so it's okay. Mostly good, at least. I'm excited to get back home, I admit, but I want to give an honest, heartfelt thanks to all of you for being so supportive while I was gone, for the folks who wrote notes on the forum, emailed, twittered. You guys are awesome. Thanks a lot. And a big thanks to my friends who took over some of the hosting and editing chores while I was gone. Wilson Fowley, M.K. Hobson, Alistair Stewart, Marguerite Kenner and Graham Dunlop, and Tina freaking Connolly. Finally, a huge thanks to my fellow Podcastle comrades who picked up the slack while I was out, the amazing Peter Wood, the incomparable Anne Leckie, and the gloriously wicked Anna Schwind. Thank you all so much. You guys are the best people to work with. Feedback this week. Ah, Feedback. Amanda M. Olson's Virtues Ghost, read by Amanda Fitzwater. This was a story about having a certain virtue literally tied to people, so they couldn't overcome the virtue such as they couldn't lie. Generally, this seemed like a crowd pleaser on our forum. L.M. Gray said, Really, really liked this one. It was haunting with all the gothic creepiness of Jane Eyre, and just enough originality to leave you wondering what your own virtue would be, and how it would be a blessing, and how it would be a curse. It also reminded me of confirmation to the Catholic Church. An element of the process I remember vividly is that you were encouraged to choose a gift of the Holy Spirit. There were seven. I chose understanding, and much like a superpower, it is fascinating to try on the gifts, like beautiful pendants, really, that you can never take off. Thelonious Monk said, It didn't kick in during the story, but afterwards I developed a real creeping horror when thinking about a state religion that controls its citizens in this way. I'd love to know more about this world. A few listeners questioned us using a New Zealand narrator to read what was seemingly an American story, which is fair, I guess, but lots of people loved Amanda's reading, despite that, including the aforementioned L.M. Gray, who said, As a Midwesterner, I eat up accents. I'd listen to a story in this accent set in the American Revolution. Yeah, well, so would I. What do you think? There's more to be found. You can swing by forum.escapeartist.net to find it all and infinitely more. While you're there, ask us to assign you a virtue, if you're feeling brave, or let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcasts flying so we can bring you the best in fantasy week after week. Well, a few of those bucks might go to cover housekeeping costs, <clears throat> now that I think about it. Well, that was our show for the week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwinn, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week, count it one, with cats flying. Until then, I've got a bad feeling about this, kid. Like Kansas is not there anymore. Like it's been totally blown away. See you next time.
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Gregory Maguire, who said, People who claim that they're evil are usually no worse than the rest of us. It's people who claim that they're good, or in any way better than the rest of us, that you have to be wary of. See you next time. Thanks for listening.